Welcome to the sermon podcast of Christ Church Medicine, a community coming home to Jesus and His Church. For more information about us, visit ChristChurchMedicine.com. In 2011, uh, there was a movie that came out called The Tree of Life, which was written and directed by a famous filmmaker named Terrence Malick. And I know many folks in our church have seen this movie because a couple years ago, I believe there was a movie night, and many of you watched it and discussed it. I think it was kind of a polarizing conversation, can't remember. Uh, For those of you who had never seen it or never heard of it, it is a very long, very existential, very experimental, and therefore very polarizing movie. Um, So maybe not everybody's cup of tea, but amidst a lot of beautiful cinematography and quotes from the book of Job and other things like that, the heart of the movie revolves around the idea that there are two paths in life, the way of nature and the way of grace. And in the film, those two paths of life are portrayed in a family, visually, where the dad, who's played by Brad Pitt, embodies the way of nature, and the mother, who's played by Jessica Chastain, embodies the way of grace. And here's the main quote from the mom in that movie about the way of nature and the way of grace. She says, quote, the nuns taught us that there are two ways through life, the way of nature and the way of grace. You have to choose which one you'll follow. Grace doesn't try to please itself, accepts being slighted, forgotten, disliked, accepts insults and injuries. Nature only wants to please itself, get others to please it too, likes to lord it over them to have its own way. It finds reasons to be unhappy when all the world is shining around it and love is smiling through all things. They taught us that no one who ever loves the way of grace ever comes to a bad end, unquote. Beautiful quote, right? So the way of nature is like the way of pride and control, self-service. If there was a picture for the way of nature, it would be a clenched fist. The way of grace is the way of meekness, submission, love, If it was a picture, instead of a clenched fist, it would be open hands. And in the movie, over a long time, you're given this visual narrative picture of these two paths. And the movie is kind of a question that's put to you, which way are you going to walk in? Genesis 16, the story we read today, is a story that contains two vignettes of two women, and it is a deeply structured piece of literature in the Bible, Genesis 16. Sarah on the one hand, and Hagar on the other hand. And like the tree of life, I think one is a a picture of the way of nature, which is Sarah, and the other is a picture of the way of grace in the character of Hagar. And like the tree of life, I think this Bible is putting a question to you when you read this text of which way you will follow in. So I want us to look at these vignettes of Sarah and Hagar, and I want to contemplate how God might be using this to speak to us this morning. So let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, would you help us to open up ourselves to your word this morning, Lord. Lord, we pray that your grace and your power would flood into us through this passage. And we ask all of this in the name of your Son. Amen. 
before we look at grace and nature, um, I want us to see that there are commonalities to both of these women's experiences. And that is that suffering and blessing are both a part of their life. Suffering and blessing are both a part of their life. Both of them have something that's really hard in their life that they're working through, they're profound challenges, and yet both of them are in a situation in, God, in which God's grace is actively at work. So to begin with Sarah, her suffering is that she is an older woman who is barren. This was a personal suffering. It was an unmet longing in her life. It was a personal grief. And if you've ever had complications in conceiving or in pregnancy or know someone who has, like my wife and I have experienced that, you will know the subterranean sadness and grief that those complications bring. But not only that, it was also a social suffering. A scholar I read this week says this, it was a serious matter for a man to be childless in the ancient world, for it left him without an heir, but it was even more calamitous for a woman. To have a great brood of children was the mark of success as a wife. To have none was an ignominious failure. And confessions of a pastor with a bad vocabulary, I had to look up what ignominious meant, and it means public shame. So Sarah's suffering was a personal grief that combined with a public shame. Yet, Sarah, at the same time, is in the midst of divine blessing. Last week we read the story, if you were here, uh, uh, in Genesis chapter 12, um, about how God intervened in her life after her husband made kind of a, a rash decision to rescue her from Egypt, and how that grace was intervening and restoring and preventing on top of that, in Genesis 15, in the chapter before this, God promises that they would have a son and that their offspring would be countless as the stars. God even covenanted himself to that promise to make sure everyone knew, I mean what I'm saying right now. And so Sarah is one of the most favored women in history. If Abraham is the father of our faith, Sarah is the mother of our faith. She is the great matriarch. In this part of Genesis, she is the one chosen to be the new Eve, the new mother of all the living. She's, hers is the womb of blessing in the book of Genesis. And so both blessing and suffering were a part of her story. And the same is true of Hagar, even if the blessing and the suffering were different. Hagar's suffering was that she was working under and subservient to a cruel mistress. She was a foreign servant girl from Egypt, and in this story, she's treated cruelly and maliciously by her mistress, Sarah. She's under a power structure in which she has no advocacy. She is in bondage. And what adds to her misery in this story is that when Sarah tells her to do something, I don't know if you caught this in the story, and it, she does it and it actually happens, then she's even treated more cruelly for doing the thing that she was told to do. Her suffering was so bad that while she was pregnant, she ended up fleeing into the desert to go to Egypt as an alone, vulnerable pregnant woman. And if you've ever been pregnant or known someone who's been pregnant, you know how crazy and severe that must have been. This was really, really bad. And yet, Hagar is swimming in blessing in this story. She too experiences the intervening, restoring, preventative grace of God. Hagar, Egyptian slave girl though she may be, 
is one of a very short list of deeply significant people in the Bible who have a one-on-one with the Lord God Almighty. She sees the angel of the Lord. She has a personal audience with him. She is seen by the Lord, as we'll see. And not only that, she gets her own generational matriarchal promise of multiplication and countless offspring. So what Abraham got, Hagar gets. I thought a lot about Cinderella this week, which is not something I say every Sunday in a sermon. But uh, thinking about the story of Cinderella, Cinderella is in a really nasty family system where she is oppressed and squashed and shoved out by the rest of this kind of cruel system. But in Cinderella, all the grace in that story, if you will, magically flows towards Cinderella to advocate for Cinderella to elevate her and to protect her. And Hagar is Cinderella. I mean, before Cinderella, there was Hagar. And just as the fairy godmother comes to Cinderella, the angel of the Lord, in a similar way, kind of finds Hagar in this story. It's beautiful. So God is so tender towards her. So both women are in a context that has real suffering and real blessing. There's hard stuff. There's beautiful stuff. There's brokenness. There's grace. There's sinful oppression. There's divine blessing working through that oppression. And in the midst of that, we see these two postures. So let's look at Sarah and Hagar and how they both react. Sarah embodies what Terrence Malick in that movie would call the way of nature, but I think what the Bible would call the way of rebellion or the way of sin. She's like a white-knuckled fist, and she demonstrates to us, as one person I read this week said, hasty action springing from unbelief. And I really like that little description because it's unbelief in God's promises that's kind of the fountainhead of everything that happens for Sarah in this passage. So look with me at verse 1. If you have your Bible, open up to Genesis 16. If you're uh, watching on the live stream, grab a Bible and open up with me. If not, go to your bulletin page uh, in your bulletin. What page is it in your bulletin? Go to page 6. All right, verse 1. Now Sarah, Abram's wife, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And there's your introduction to the story. It's all there, right? Here's what's going to happen in this passage. Verse 2. And Sarah said to Abraham, Behold, now the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. And there we see that things have gone wrong in her heart to begin with. She's blaming God for her barrenness. And like Abram last week, remember we we said Abram kind of got out of step of God's promises. And we see Sarah doing that here. I mean, literally the entire chapter before this is God doing all kinds of pyrotechnics to let Abram know, like, I'm going to do this. And yet she's functioning like what God has spoken is either false or impossible. And it paves the way for everything else. Sarah's vignette is intentionally set up to imitate Genesis 3 and the fall and what happens with Eve. And just as everything begins in the fall with Eve believing a lie, so everything begins here with Sarah believing a deception about God's character. Sure, he might be saying this stuff to Abraham, but he doesn't care about me. This isn't going to affect me. And that lie gives birth to the hasty action. So look at verse 2. And Sarah said to Abram, Behold, now the Lord's prevented me from bearing children. Go into my servant. 
It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarah. So where am I now? Verse 3. So after Abram lived 10 years in the land of Canaan, Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram and her husband as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. Okay. Um, a few things about this. First of all, this was a common practice in the ancient world where in the absence of an heir from a wife, one could practice a kind of surrogate motherhood through a servant or someone else or a concubine in order to produce an heir. And this was a cultural thing. It was born out of a lot of necessity. We don't do this today, but this wasn't crazy in the ancient world. But the Bible is making clear that it was out of step with God's promises. It was out of step with what God had promised and, and commanded. And second, like I said, these few verses are full of allusions to Genesis 3 and to the fall. Eve is deceived. She takes the fruit, gives it to her husband, and he goes with it. And here, Sarah believes a lie, takes Hagar, gives her to her husband, and he goes with it. So out of a doubt of God's character, Sarah kind of manipulates and clenches her fist to try to get what she wants out of this situation. And where's Abram? Like Adam, he's passive and enabling. Huh? Okay. Yeah, sure. Let's read on in verse 4. And, we, he went into, and he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarah said to Abraham, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she'd conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between me and you. But Abram said to Sarah, Behold, your servant's in your power. Do to her as you please. And then Sarah dealt harshly with her, and she fled. I think it's interesting that Sarah got what she wanted in this passage. She was trying to get an heir through Hagar. She got what she wanted. Her manipulation worked, and yet what fruit did it yield for her? Anger and self-pity. Verse 5 is an outburst of rage and a shifting of blame. What she says, may the Lord judge between me and you, that's almost like a curse towards Abraham. Now, besides the fall, do you see how this is a parallel story to our passage from last week, for those of you who are here? If you weren't here last week, it's a passage about how Abram uh, gets really nervous. He, he, he's afraid of something. He doubts God's ability to do what he said he would do, and he tries to get his spouse to sleep with somebody else to solve the problem, to Pharaoh in Egypt, and it creates a huge mess. It's literally the, the mirror opposite of Genesis 12, and I told you the family is dysfunctional. This is a crazy marriage, isn't it? I mean, this is some messed up stuff, right? This is the way of nature. Nature only wants to please itself, get others to please it too, likes to lord it over them to have its own way. It finds reasons to be unhappy when all the world is shining around it and love is smiling through all things. Now let's look at the way of grace in the life of Hagar. Hagar's story, like I said, is a picture of submission to God and openness. If Sarah's story is a clenched fist, Hagar's an open hand. Her vignette in verse 7 begins when she is being treated so harshly, like I said, that she flees after this happens with Sarah. And Hagar's not completely innocent. You know, it's hard to know what's happening with the contempt, jealousy situation there. 
but she flees into the wilderness to try and get back to Egypt. And at that moment, as a pregnant foreign servant alone in the wilderness, Hagar is the biblical essence of vulnerability and injustice. She's been squeezed out onto the fringes of society by the oppression of her mistress and others. But then look at verses eight and nine with me. Actually, let's just start in verse seven. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur, and he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah, where have you come from? Where are you going? And she said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. Last week we talked about how one of the major themes in Genesis is grace, and man, it's beautiful in this passage. The angel of the Lord found her. Don't you love that? I feel like an entire sermon could just be preached on that one phrase. The God of the Bible is the God who finds us. Hagar was alone and was fleeing, and the Lord found her. And he calls her by name, Hagar. He speaks tenderly to her. He asks her this, this question, where are you going? Where have you come from? And I feel like I kind of love Hagar's honest question, which I think shows she's really open to God and also probably is just so exhausted and so beat down. She's just tired of covering anything up. Yeah, I'm fleeing from my mistress. So before we move on, let's not miss how amazing God's grace is in this story. Last week, we studied in chapter 12 how God intervened by his grace in the life of Sarah. Now, God intervenes by grace to save Hagar. In chapter 12, God intervened to save an Israelite suffering at the hands of Egyptians. And what does he do here? He intervenes to save an Egyptian suffering at the hand of a family that would become the Israelites. So last week we talked about how that Abraham passage was like a proto-Exodus. This story is like Exodus in negative. So here's a lesson that we can learn. God elected Abraham and Sarah and their family to bear the blessing of God to bless the world, but his compassion and his mercy are impartial. Amen? On all people. The Lord is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, rich in love. And we know this is central to God's character, that this would continue to happen because God would just continue to do stuff like this all throughout the rest of Bible history and in world history. Can you think of any other situation where there is a woman who is disenfranchised and alone in the desert and suffering by a well and God shows up to her and calls her and asks her a question? John 4, right? So rich. Now what does God say to her? First in verse nine, God gives Hagar a really hard word, which is to go back to Sarah and to submit to her. And if that's all God said, and this was the end of the story, that would seem really insensitive and uh, maybe even messed up that he's like asking her to go back to be oppressed. 
But even though it's a hard word, it's not a cruel one, as we can tell from what God says next and what he does next. Verse 10 says, the angel of the Lord also said to her in the same way, I will surely multiply your offspring so that they cannot be numbered for multitude. And that is a page out of the book of what the promise given to Abraham, right? Almost the same words. So this shows, like I said, Hagar is getting this generational, beautiful blessing and promise from God. She gets her own matriarchal promise. And then on top of that, the angel of the Lord gives this prophecy in verse 11 and 12. In the beginning of it, says, behold, you are pregnant and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has listened to your affliction. And that is a page right out of the book of the Annunciation of Mary, the handmaid of the Lord. Indeed, if Sarah's vignette, like we said, is set up to biblically mirror um, Eve's in Genesis 3, Hagar's is set up to foreshadow the beauty and submission of Mary. Think about it. Mary was a poor woman who was found and shown favor by an angel from the Lord. She too was publicly shamed for her, her pregnancy. She too was vulnerable as a poor woman while she was pregnant, leading up to her birth, the birth of the Lord Jesus. She too had to flee Egypt because of an oppressive situation. Flee to Egypt, sorry. And both women embody the way of grace because both women, in the context of their suffering and in their blessing, open themselves up to God. Both women are famous for submitting to the will of God and believing that what God said would actually be true. And in fact, I think Hagar has her own little magnificat here at the end of this story. Remember how Sarah's vignette finishes with this burst of blaming others and just anger and just kind of, ah, the Lord be on me, all this bad stuff has happened. Well, Hagar, she also has a, an outburst as well, but instead of it being an outburst of anger and self-pity, it's this outburst of faith and consolation. Look at verse 13. If Genesis 16 was a chocolate lava cake, verse 13 would be the gooey molten center that just spills out over your plate, okay? Okay. Now I've got your attention. <laughs> Verse 13, so she called the name, this is what, this is her first response. She's alone in the wilderness. God finds her, he says all this to her, and here's what flows up out of her, the fountain of her heart. So she called the name of the Lord, the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly, here I have seen him who looks after me. Truly, I have seen him who looks after me. What a phrase. Every now and then we see something really special. We notice it, right? It's like a moose at dawn in the forest. I saw that once, never forgot it. A crush across the room at a high school dance. Maybe they're not looking at you, but you're looking at them. A buzzer beater in the NBA finals. Lord have mercy on the bucks. Every now and then we realize that we're seen. We find a, an anonymous gift on our front step in front of our door and we think, wow, somebody did that and was thinking of me. An anonymous email about something where you didn't know you were being watched, where you realize I was seen, wow. But those are two different experiences. What Hagar experiences is both at the same time. Don't miss this. 
she sees what few eyes in this world have ever seen, which is the angel of the Lord. And what she sees when she looks at the Lord is him looking back at her. She sees God seeing her. She catches God in the act of caring for her. Earlier this week, I was driving home and I caught a friend bringing a frappuccino and flowers to Marissa. I caught her in the act. I saw her seeing my wife. Hagar is, she sees God looking back at her. She sees that he's caring for her. And what she sees of God sinks into the openness of her heart. What she sees fills her soul. She doesn't just hear God's promise and see what he's doing and kind of doubt it or laugh it off. She allows all those things to be assimilated into her by faith. She opens herself up to what she sees revealed in God. And so what is spoken over Mary can be said of Hagar. Blessed is she who has believed what the Lord would fulfill, that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And out of faith, she obeys God. She does a really hard thing. She goes back to Abram and Sarah. But she goes back a changed woman because she saw that God sees her. She knows that God is caring for her and watching over her. And we get a glimpse of this, of God's provision, because when she goes back at the end of the chapter, Hagar has her baby, and Sarah is nowhere in sight. If you look at the last few verses, and that could be because Abram finally started protecting Hagar, or it could be that the Lord was working in mysterious ways. Regardless, the end of the story shows blessing for Hagar and kind of an elevation of status as a wife of Abram and as the mother of a massive generational matriarchal promise. What a story, right? There's so much here I'm not addressing, but this is a profoundly beautiful story. I want to finish with a thought about God and a thought about us really quick. First, don't you just love the character of God in this passage? I mentioned in our prayer circle this morning, I've just been wooed again in a story that is, again, like our story last week, on the surface, not very pleasant or interesting, but I'm just wooed towards the character of God in this passage. I love how tender God is towards Hagar. I love it. I love how God sees the vulnerable, finds the outcast. This is Jesus 101, right? This is Jesus and the woman at the well who came to offer her living water in the middle of the day when she was lost and had had many husbands. I love that God sees and hears us, period. Amen? God sees us. He hears us. That was true in Abraham's story when he messed up. It was true in this one. I love that God's grace intervened in Sarah's life and Hagar's life. Both. I also love that in the course of Genesis, God is gracious towards Sarah even after this passage. When you read this story, like Cinderella, it's easy to hop on Team Hagar and really start hating on Sarah. Let's just get done with Sarah. She needs to be out of this. 
But God doesn't do that. Amen? Isn't that amazing? Several chapters after this, he comes to Sarah and he has his one-on-one with Sarah and Sarah conceives. I love the way that in which God loves Sarah and Hagar is the way that God loves us in the gospel. This is the God that we know. This is the God that we worship. This is the God who's in our midst. Amen? We're found in the gospel. We're seen. We're shown mercy. We're blessed. Hallelujah. That brings me to a final note about us. All of us have suffering in our life. All of us. Hard things which are not going away. Maybe even some hard things that God is asking us to walk through. Crosses that he's asking us to bear. And all of us are swimming in blessing. In the gospel, love really is shining through all things. In the gospel, the blessing of God is free and available. The word of the Lord has come to us. If you are in this room right now, the word of the Lord is coming to you. In the gospel, we really are seen, and the Holy Spirit bears witness to us that we see the God who takes care of us. And so like Hagar and Sarah, all of us have hard things, and all of us have divine grace in our life. And though we know that God is in the business of separating those things forever, right? One day, he's going to destroy suffering. He's going to wipe away every tear of the eye. This is the trajectory of the gospel. We know that, but we also know that Jesus promised that in this broken world in which we live in, we will face trials. There's no getting around that. And yet Jesus also promised that he's overcome the world. So it's on us to decide which way we'll choose, the way of nature or the way of grace. To yield to the Lord, to open ourselves up to him, to endure suffering with Christ, trusting that he's at work, trusting that he will care for us, that the word he's spoken is actually gonna come true, no matter how deep the valley, or to clench our fist, to doubt what he's saying, that he's either lying or he's incapable of bringing these things about and start trying to control and manipulate everything ourselves. The way of nature leads to anger and self-pity. The way of grace leads to faith and consolation to a magnificat. And no one who ever loves the way of grace ever comes to a bad end. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.